1987, 18-year-old Michelle Schofield was murdered. The police believe the evidence pointed straight to her husband, but the new podcast, Bone Valley, has brought that into question and makes us explore if Leo Schofield was wrongfully convicted. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines, and thank you all so much for the positive feedback on my interview with Helen from Death of an Artist last week. I'm especially glad you enjoyed it because I already have a few more like it on the calendar as bonus content for everyone. This week, I was able to sit down with Gilbert King from the podcast Bone Valley. His background is in investigative writing, and he has won the Pulitzer Prize for his book, Death in the Grove. But as he has turned to podcasting, he has taken on the case of Michelle Schofield and the conviction of her husband, Leo. I want to give you some background on the case first, a bit of a Cliff Notes version, and then you'll get to hear my interview with Gilbert at the end. And while you're listening to this, it wouldn't hurt to search for Bone Valley in your podcast app and hit follow. This case starts in 1987 with 18-year-old Michelle Schofield and her 21-year-old husband, Leo. The two met and married in a short period of time, fast enough that some of their friends' heads spun. But they were young and they were in love. They moved into a trailer in Combi Settlement, which is just outside of Lakeland, Florida. Being a young couple without high school diplomas, they did have money issues. They had to share a single car, and Michelle waited tables while Leo picked up odd jobs and focused on his dream of being a full-time musician. On February 24th, 1987, Michelle took their shared car to work. Leo was going to be at a friend's house, so the plan was for her to pick him up there around 8 p.m. when she got off of work. She did clock out around 8.15. An hour and a half later, around 9.45 or so, Michelle called Leo from a payphone saying that she was on her way and asked if he wanted her to pick him up some fast food with her tips from her shift. He said no, and she said she was heading right to him. This drive should have taken no more than 15 minutes, but she didn't show up. Leo called his father around 11.30 and told him that Michelle hadn't shown up and he didn't know what to do. Leo Sr. told him to wait a few more minutes and then call him back if Michelle still did not show. Around midnight, Leo called his father again and said Michelle still wasn't there. So Leo Sr. went and picked him up, and then they drove Michelle's route from her work to the friend's house, looking for any sign of her or the couple's Mazda station wagon. They saw nothing. Michelle was now hours late, and Leo said he was in a panic. He called the hospitals to see if she had been in a car crash and couldn't find her there. So at 12.43 a.m., Leo called the police and said he needed to report his wife missing. For the next several hours, Leo drove around with his parents looking for Michelle, including going to her dad's house between 2.20 and 2.30 in the morning. 
Her dad then joined the search. So now we have Leo, his parents, and now his father-in-law looking. As Leo was driving around searching with a family member, he saw two patrolmen sitting in a parking lot. He approached them and asked if they had gotten Michelle's missing persons report. At that point, they had not, so he gave them Michelle's description and the make and model of the car so that they could be on the lookout. Leo also contacted Michelle's friends in those overnight hours and into the next day. When they would hear she was missing, they would also join the search. So you can just envision the search party growing as Leo kept making contact with everyone and no one had heard from Michelle. Michelle's friends and family, they held on to this little glimmer of hope that maybe Michelle had just stayed out with a friend. Maybe she was trying to get away from Leo for a bit. There had been stories about how volatile their relationship could be. But that hope dwindled as Michelle didn't make contact with anyone throughout the next day, particularly the people she would go to if she was having an issue. And then that hope was shattered when her car was found abandoned on February 25th. A friend had been driving home from work when he saw the Mazda and called the police. The car had broken down on the side of the road with very little water in the radiator and the flywheel had fallen off. Some speakers and an amplifier had also been stolen out of the car. Two days later, after multiple searches, family and friends began a strategic search along the road where the car had been found. As Leo was searching in one area, he saw two sheriff's cars speed past sirens on. So he jumped into a vehicle and followed them. They pulled over where a group had been searching. Leo then saw his dad walking towards the road, and by the way his father was holding himself, he knew something terrible had happened. Leo Sr. told him that Michelle was gone, and Leo said he could not process it at first, and asked what he meant by that. At this time, they're searching waterways and ditches and wooded areas, so Leo knew intellectually that they were searching for Michelle's body. But then when it was found and this happened, It was like his brain just could not accept it at first. Michelle's body had been found in an old phosphate pit that was full of water. She was face down, and there was a large piece of plywood lying over her body in a rudimentary attempt to hide the body. She had been stabbed 26 times. Leo's father had been the one to find her, and he said something about having a premonition of where to look, and the police found that suspicious. Of all the searching in all of the areas, he seemed to know right where to go to find the body. Leo Jr. later explained to the news program 2020 that what his dad meant was that he felt God had guided him there, He didn't make this comment before finding the body about, oh, I know right where to look. It was in hindsight, and I'm going to tell you that's very common to hear in cases like this. 
searchers who find someone who is missing or find some key evidence have often said that they feel that God or an angel or some force led them to whatever it is they found. This is a common experience people have expressed. However, the police did not see it that way. And when they heard accusations that Leo was a jealous husband who emotionally and possibly physically abused Michelle, Leo, and to some degree his father, became their prime suspects. The police also had a witness, a neighbor across the street, a woman named Alice. She said she heard Leo and Michelle return home in the Mazda on the night of February 24th, the same night Leo said Michelle had never shown up. Alice said she saw them go inside their trailer, she overheard an argument, and later she saw Leo carry a heavy object out to the car and drive off. This would have made the trailer the scene of the crime, yet an examination of the scene did not find the amount of blood you would expect to find if someone was stabbed 26 times inside that trailer. Alice also said that the day after Michelle went missing, she saw Leo using a carpet cleaner in the home. But the investigators did not find that the carpet looked recently cleaned. In addition to those issues with Alice's story, there's also a timeline issue. Alice saw Leo move something heavy to the car trunk at 2.15. She was pretty sure about this time. But by 2.20 to 2.30, he was across town at his father-in-law's house in one of his parents' vehicles looking for Michelle. So, Leah would have had to move the body into the Mazda, clean up, switch cars, and then make it out to his father-in-law's house. All in 5 to 15 minutes, it just does not seem possible. This investigation continued into the next year. Another witness came forward saying they saw the Mazda and Leo Sr.'s pickup truck out where the body was found. And that serves the state's narrative in this case two ways. One, it puts Leo Sr. and Leo Jr. together at one of the crime scenes, which is an issue for Leo Jr.'s alibi that he was out searching, because who was he searching with? His parents. The second way this bolsters the state's case is it explains how Leo got from the broken-down Mazda back home to start searching for Michelle. So the theory that emerged here was that Leo had killed his wife, he called his father for help, and that's how Leo Sr. knew where to find Michelle's body. In spite of this being the prevailing theory, Leo Sr. was never arrested. This was already going to be a circumstantial case against Leo Jr. for the murder, and there just wasn't enough against Leo Sr. to bring charges. In June 1988, Leo Schofield Jr. was arrested. At trial, the motive presented was that Leo's rage and jealousy led to Michelle's murder. Leo's character was put on trial with 21 state witnesses 
testifying about his temper, and some of them alleging that they witnessed physical abuse, including punching Michelle in the stomach and pulling her hair. Leo denies those things happened. The defense, of course, pointed out the lack of forensic evidence and said that the forensic evidence that they did have pointed to someone else, and that evidence was fingerprints. Inside the Mazda, there were fingerprints that belonged to someone who was not Leo, his father, or Michelle. The police were unable at the time of trial to match them to anyone. They also pointed out the issues with the timeline. Leo was seen by various people at various points in the night, so when did he kill his wife? These questions to the defense added up to reasonable doubt. The jury disagreed, and Leo was convicted of first-degree murder and given a sentence of life in prison. But this is not where the story ends because, of course, we have appeals and post-conviction relief hearings. It's kind of a long story because it's not exactly through official channels, but those fingerprints that had been found in the Mazda were eventually run against Florida's database, and they got a hit. They matched a person named Jeremy Scott who was in prison for murder and not for the only murder he's been a suspect in. This information did get Leo an evidentiary hearing on his appeal in 2010. The state argued that the prints were in the car not because Jeremy Scott was a murderer, but because of something else he was. He was a thief. They argued successfully to the court that Jeremy had taken advantage of an abandoned car and he robbed it. That didn't mean it was enough to have changed the jury's mind at a new trial, so the motion for a new trial was denied. But then later on, Jeremy Scott did something unexpected. He confessed to Leo Schofield's appellate attorney. When the state sent investigators to the prison to speak to him themselves, he recanted. He said he did not confess. But then the defense sent a PI to the prison to talk to him again. And then he re-confessed and gave a detailed confession about how he approached Michelle while she was at a payphone and asked for a ride. He then talked about how he attacked her and why, and that he left her body in the water. And that area is one that has been proven to be an area he was familiar with. He tried to get away in the car, but it broke down and he had to abandon it. Now, based on this confession, Leo got himself another evidentiary hearing in 2017. During that hearing, Jeremy Scott contradicted himself as he was questioned by both sides. He was unclear, and the court actually called his testimony bizarre, and they denied this motion. As of this recording, Leo Schofield, though eligible for parole, remains behind bars. And it's at this point, after the 2017 evidentiary hearing, that Bone Valley picks up. Bone Valley is going to go back through everything that had been uncovered up to that 2017 evidentiary hearing, and then they keep going, with Gilbert King having investigated this case himself for four 
years. And the result of that is a groundbreaking podcast called Bone Valley that will explore all of this. So with that, let's go ahead and switch to the interview with Gilbert King, the host of Bone Valley. First, thank you for coming on my podcast. I was very excited when your people reached out to me about this. My pleasure. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you, Charlie. I was I was excited. I'm like, I even bragged on my personal Facebook that I have a Pulitzer Prize winning author coming on my <laughs> oh, show. It feels like oh, a pretty big deal. Now I got pressure. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just going to start with a probably a pretty basic question. Why the name Bone Valley? You know, Bone Valley was was a, a it's an area in this part of central Florida. And believe it or not, even people who live there are not really familiar with the term. But it, it was um, because there was so much phosphate that was discovered, like in the last century, back in the 19th century, they discovered all this phosphate. And as they were digging it, they found all these bones. And it was like, you know, really large, like mastodons and, and sharks, uh, backbones and, and hand, um, uh, teeth, thousands and thousands of shark teeth. And because Florida was underwater at some time. And it, so it just seemed like, well, they called it Bone Valley, and it just seems like the perfect word for a podcast, especially when you consider that, you know, the phosphate industry kind of indirectly plays a part in this in this particular story. Um, it's where Michelle Schofield's body was found in a phosphate pit. So you are an accomplished author, and you certainly could have made this into a compelling book. Why did you choose podcast? <laughs> it's such a great question. You know, I think the reason was I originally intended to go down there and to do a feature story on the case. When it was brought to my attention, I started looking into it. And I said, yeah, I should write something about this. I'm not sure if it makes up a whole book, but at least it'd be an interesting feature story about this. And as I started working on it, uh, the very first interview I did was with Leo Schofield in, in the Hardy Correctional Institution. And his prison is actually in Bone Valley. And uh, I came out of there thinking, I just spent like almost three hours with this guy and, and the stories he told were so compelling. And I just felt like, wow, to put those in quotes just doesn't do it justice. It was really dramatic and the way he would tell a story. And so I started thinking like, maybe this should be a podcast. And I was just starting to listen to a lot of crime narrative podcasts. And I thought, you know what? I think I have one here. All the people I'm talking to are still alive. You know, usually when I, when I do work on these cases, they're from the pre-civil rights era from the, you know, the 1940s. So everybody's dead. I'm just looking at documents. And so now I was getting like firsthand uh, recordings of these people who were actually in the story and it was just compelling. And I said, this is a podcast. It's not a book. What kind of access did you have to people's firsthand stories? Like who are we going to hear from on Bone Valley? You're going to hear from just about everybody who's still alive with the exception of, well, I shouldn't even say that. I was going to say, the state attorney's office, the one who prosecuted Leo Schofield, um, said that they would not talk to me. Um, they didn't want to give anybody comments. But we actually went out and got detectives who worked on the case. We got uh, the sheriff, Grady Judd of Polk County, who is an interesting sheriff. If you Google him, he goes viral a lot. He has these really over-the-top press conferences, like the law and order sheriff. Uh, but he agreed to talk to us because he was around back in the day. He started working for the sheriff's office when he was 17 years old. And, and so he agreed to speak with us about it. I think probably the most important thing is I have the two men who are connected to the murder of Michelle Schofield, the husband, Leo Schofield, who's been in prison for the last 35 years, and the person who confessed to killing Michelle Schofield, 
whose fingerprints were found in the car she was driving, um, spoke to him too. So we have both of these men who were connected to the story. And so we've got access to just about everyone. We talked to the trial judge, the prosecutors, uh, some of the old prosecutors, the defense team. We've talked to just about everybody. Um, it took four years to do, so we, we really um, took our time with it. <laughs> so, wow, working on it for four years. I do kind of one-and-done episodes on cases, and sometimes I work with family. Sometimes I'm just working from court documents. A lot of times appellate documents have, you know, the real important parts and things like that. And, you know, in an hour I tell a basic story and then bring in some issues possibly, and then we move on to spend four years to finally have it coming out. That must be huge. You know, it, it, it was a, it was a difficult process. I didn't really know the podcast world. And in the middle of this, we got the pandemic, which sort of cut down on a lot. I think what was really valuable to me over the pandemic was I was able to do a lot of the hardcore research going through the appellate decisions and the briefs and just really focusing on the written side of this case um, and then we were doing some phone interviews with people. We, we finally got a little more sophisticated that and switched online. Um, so the quality of the sound got a little better as we as we learned more. But yeah, you know, it was one of those things like four years of my life was spent on this case. And I'm really looking back at it now, going, where did all that time go? Because I really wasn't working on anything else. So this was it. And uh, it really did take that long. My, my books take about four or five years, too. So I think I put the same kind of time into it that I would normally put into a book, in, into a podcast. Uh, who knew? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a different type of podcast to do these long forms. I'm curious, you are in, you know, the Northeast. How did you come across this case in Florida? Well, it's interesting. I've spent like the last 15 years of my life writing about cases in Florida, in Central Florida. And so because I've gotten so involved down there and, and, and met so many contacts over the years, what I do a lot of public speaking um, at legal conferences, judicial conferences. This case came to me really in a remarkable way. I was speaking at a judicial conference in, in 2018. And um, so it was all these Florida judges were there, hundreds of them. And one of them came up to me afterwards with his business card. And he, he handed it to me as I was signing books. And I turned it over. It was a sitting judge in the, in the in a circuit judge in Florida. And it had the name Leo Schofield, and it said, not just wrongfully convicted, he's an innocent man. And I remember just seeing that card, like, I've gotten a lot of tips about stories, but never from a sitting judge. And so that, that kind of, I was taken aback by it. I started talking to some people, and they're like, you should call him. That's, that's really interesting that a judge is willing to say that to you. And so he was the one that brought this case to me. And it turned out he worked on it as a defense attorney about 15 years before. Um, and so it was just a case that had just stuck in him and he could not shake it. And he felt that this was a great injustice. And I think he was driven to approach a writer and get someone to, to take this case on. One of the things that as I've kind of looked into the case a little bit myself, I did watch the 2020 special. I had a hard time maybe because they didn't follow the thread all the way through, but the neighbor, Alice, mm. she seemed to witness so much and so much that was very convenient to a narrative that it doesn't necessarily seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. Do you explore Alice and her role in this case more? Yeah, we go into it in, in depth in two episodes, actually, because she, what the things that she says she witnessed were not witnessed by anybody else in the neighborhood. So Alice Scott was sort of like the, she was described by the prosecutor as the neighborhood busybody. 
she was always the one who was looking out the window, calling police when she saw something. Kids wrote on her uh, on her lawn. She would call the police. And yet on this night, the night Michelle Schofield was murdered, she claims to have seen Leo Schofield have a fight with her, carry what she thought was the body into the back of the car, drive off. And then the next morning, she claimed to have seen Leo bring a, a carpet cleaner in and start cleaning the carpet, which, you know, there was a little bit of, of suspicion about that because even her own husband said, I don't want her involved in this case. Um, and he later said she twists the truth. She tends to get involved in these things. And um, and so she's a really important, she's the, the whole state's case rests on her testimony. And in fact, because she said she witnessed what she witnessed, that made the trailer the crime scene. And, you know, when the crime scene technicians went in there, they didn't find a speck of blood. They didn't find anything. And, and they, you know, spent five hours in there. And the only thing they ended up coming out was a little small piece, like three inches of carpet that they thought might could have been a blood stain. And when they analyzed it later, they said, well, we can't really tell what it is. It could be vegetable oil, it could be vodka, it could be rust, could be blood. We don't know. But, um, you know, the, the Schofields had two little pets in there. It could have also, the two puppies, it could have been, you know, uh, dog feces as well. So there's a lot of possibilities, but but they ended up coming out with really no conclusive evidence of any blood. One of the things I thought was really odd was that um, the crime scene technicians decided not to tear up the carpeting to see if any blood had come through because they said they were afraid of damaging the trailer. And that to me has always struck me. If there's a woman who's, who was supposedly stabbed 26 times in this trailer, in this crime scene, and you're worried about damaging a single wide trailer... So you don't want to rip up that. That never made any sense to me. And it always told me, I think, that the detectives and the crime scene technicians, they didn't believe that this was the actual crime scene. But when Alice Scott said that, now it had to be the crime scene. Uh, and so it was a really, it's a really important part of the whole story. I was reading one of the appellate decisions where they, where they called um, the testimony of Jeremy Scott bizarre from yeah. his going back and forth when you spoke with him did you find him to have an inconsistent story or a bizarre way of speaking or was he pretty clear with you for us he was very clear i think it was because every time he's been interviewed he's always like read his rights you know he's put under oath a lot of times the, the conversations are confrontational and and so i don't feel he's at his as most you know relaxed state in 2017, when he showed up in court to testify, you know, he was off his meds. He was in a psych cell and he said, you know, I'm, I'm laying on this cold floor eating food with my fingers. Um, I'm not on my medications. He, he just wanted to get out of there. He was really agitated. And so the, the Leo's defense team actually had to have him declared a hostile witness because he just didn't want to participate with anything. Um, and so, yeah, there's definitely some things that he's he's bizarre you know, at one point he said he he's confessing to all murders in Polk County in 1987 and 88. And so the state comes in and says, you see, he's crazy. You can't believe a word he says. Well, the truth of the matter is we believe he killed four people. He's forensically tied to three of those. He's confessed to four murders. So if he says I killed everybody in Polk County, what do you do then? Just say he, he's unreliable and just throw everything out? Or do you look specifically at where he's forensically linked and what he said about those individual cases. And I think it's really a lot of laziness on the part of the state because they're trying to protect the conviction. So they want his credibility to be zero. And so that's the way they argue about Jeremy's testimony.
Yeah, they definitely want him to be credible when he says, oh, I just stole the speakers. But now he's not credible when he says he did more. Right. I mean, that's just the most infuriating part of it is just cherry picking which part of Jeremy is telling the truth. I mean, why don't acknowledge that he's a very difficult witness? Sometimes he admits to being drunk or high. And so he doesn't have all the details correct. But, you know, he told us some things that there's no way he could have known these things that we were able to corroborate some things. And that's like a very big part of our final episode. Um, it's just, we went in and finally met with him and um, you know, we, we get a lot of things from him that was never, he's never said before. And I think you'll find that when, in the ninth episode, when we visit him, I, I just challenge anybody to listen to that, to listen to that interview and then look back at what the state says about him and, and you make your decision. And that's sort of where we feel like there's a truth here and, and it's up to the, the listeners to decide where it is. One of the big things on my show, it's called Crime Lines because we walk through a crime timeline and we're always looking at timelines. And in this case, the timeline of Leo Schofield's night is pretty well witnessed. He was running around here, there and everywhere, getting people to come help him search. And so I'm confused on when they say he did this. Yeah, and it's a really hard thing to do because they had to line it up with with Alice Scott's testimony because when Alice Scott says she sees Leo come out at 2.15 a.m. carrying something heavy that she thought was a body, well, she marked that time at 2.15. And, and you know, she, she, she was said, looking at the clock. She said, I remember he came home at 1.30 and she, she goes through the whole timeline. And so she puts it at roughly 2.15. She says 2.15, which is impossible really because leo is at 2 30 he shows up at david psalm's house now that's michelle's father now originally david psalm said it was 2 20 when leo knocked on the door but then once it came to trial you could tell he was talking to the prosecutor it might have become 2 30 then because they have to work on that timeline but there is just absolutely no way that leo could have you know been in two places at once and, and so when we look back at, at alice scott and some of her testimony uh, you can see so she's like, when she's confronted about it, she changes her testimony. And 20 years later, when a reporter showed up to question her about that, she changed her story once again. So she's never really been a consistent uh, storyteller in this entire case. I think her, her sister-in-law, who lived next door, who was, was, was definitely close to the truth, and she said, yes, Alice and I did see Leo carry something out heavy one night, but that was like a week or two earlier. It was not on the night that Michelle disappeared. And it's pretty obvious that Leo was not at that trailer that night. He was at band practice and he was out searching for his wife. It's really interesting that she puts it specifically that the Mazda was there, since that would have also meant not only did he go to his father-in-law's house, he had to have traded out cars at some point because he showed up in one of his parents' vehicles. So the whole thing is just, it just doesn't work. It, uh, it really doesn't. And then there's also like this moment where that, you know, he had, Leo had a terrible defense attorney. Um, he just really dropped the ball. He was just used to shooting from the hip and doing it on his personality instead of the evidence. And he was up against a prosecutor who was you know, very formidable. And what the one thing that always bothered me was Leo and Michelle did not have a phone in their trailer. So there was, Leo said at two o'clock, I was making phone calls. I called the sheriff's office. I called all the hospitals. I was trying to find my wife. And Leo's defense attorney was never able to call those dispatchers to, to, to verify this. But interestingly enough, one of the phone calls he made, which was exactly at two o'clock, was to Michelle's grandmother. 
And he ended up speaking to the aunt at two o'clock. And this was verified and validated um, by the detective who went to this woman's house and, and said, yes, we, we can prove that she says it was a two o'clock phone call. This was never brought up at trial. Leo's defense attorney never brought that up, which would have really helped his alibi because he said, I was at my parents' house making phone calls at 2 a.m., which meant it would have been impossible for him to be back at the trailer. And it never makes it into trial. It's just maddening when you look at some of the facts of this case that don't make it in. Again, timeline is big for me. So that's what I'm trying to put together. And if you say, okay, well, it happened before Alice said, well, then Alice's testimony is out and now you have no evidence that he did it. So it's definitely one of these cases that um, falls apart really quickly once you move one piece and say, okay, what if this happened 15 minutes earlier? The whole thing falls apart. You're you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things that, uh, you know, one of the things the judge, when I went and did that that talk and the judge approached me with the car, one of the things is I said to him, look, I I think the story is really interesting, but I have another book project I'm working on. I don't see myself being able to get to this in a while. And I could really feel how disappointed he was. And he said, just do me a favor. I'm going to send you the trial transcript. Just read the transcript. I'm asking you a favor. And, you know, when a judge asks you a favor like that, okay, I'm going to do it. I sat down and started reading the the trial transcript. And, you know, I was reading it pretty carefully. And it was pretty obvious to me that the, the timeline, the state's timeline made absolutely no sense. And I went back to the judge and I had some questions. And he told me the story. He said, you know, I got through the state's case. And I closed that binder. And I said, there's no way this guy did it. He could not have done it based on what I've just read in the testimony. So you've been doing this a long time. You can see how you can get a conviction. You can. It's not hard to bamboozle a jury if you're a really aggressive prosecutor and your defense attorney is sort of sleeping on the job. These things do happen. We know that wrongful convictions do happen. But that was one of the things I noticed very early just reading the transcript. Like The state's case absolutely makes no sense. We've definitely seen that here on Crime Lines. We covered a case out of Connecticut, actually. Um, Barbara Gibbons is 1970s. Her teenage son was convicted. And again, there was literally no way based on points that they could verify on the timeline between when he arrived home and dispatch calls that he literally could not have done it. Yet he got convicted anyway because they try to screen jurors for this, but there is a bias towards, well, If there wasn't evidence, this wouldn't have made it to trial. And that's not entirely true. (laughs) Some some very weak cases make it to trial. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's amazing to me. Like, you know, I think when you start, you're you're presumed innocent before you start trial. But once you get to the post-conviction phase, you're presumed guilty. And it's got to be like you got to move mountains to overturn a a wrongful conviction. So, um, yeah, I absolutely agree. It's not it's not that difficult. and, And we lay it out how it actually happened, how the, how the prosecutor was able to do this. And, you know, we ended up talking to the judge. Um, we talked to some of the witnesses. We even talked to one of the jurors. The juror was amazing. You know, this is Florida, right? So everybody's retired basically in 1980s when they're on the jury. So that would make them like in their 90s today. So there weren't really too many of them alive. We did find one woman who was 22 at the time. And we interviewed her. And she like, shocked shocked me. She said, I didn't think he did it, but, uh, you know, everybody else did. So I went along with him. I mean, <laughs> you're not supposed to do that, um, number one. But, you know, she did say something really interesting. You know, the prosecutor was going for the death penalty. And she said, you know, I voted to convict. But, um, you know, in, in terms of the execution, I was not going to go with that. And she said she was able to get the other jurors to change their minds and to not go with the death penalty. 
So even though she voted to convict Leo Schofield, which she shouldn't have done if she didn't think he did it, she's probably one of the main reasons that Leo's still alive today is that she sort of persuaded the jury to, to give a life sentence instead of death. Yeah, because back when Leah was tried, Florida juries, if they they didn't need a unanimous death penalty recommendation for the judge to then give it, the judge had uh, more discretion. That has changed due to, you know, some rulings on it. But he very well could have gotten the death penalty, even if she voted against it. But the rest of the jurors still went for it. Yeah. And, and she said, you know, she goes, I think they felt sorry for me because I didn't think he did it. And so they they changed their vote to sort of make her happy. And it's like, it's such a weird thing that someone would say that, that this is what's happening in, in a jury room. You know, I let a, um, a, a prosecutor friend of mine listen to it. And, and she said, you know, it's, it's what we've all always known, but we've never heard anyone say it out loud. <laughs> the compromises that happen in deliberations are not something we want to think about because no. it's not how it's supposed to go. Right, right. And, you know, it's just like every phase of this trial was problematic when I looked at it. I mean, and then, you know, learning about the jury deliberations, even that's problematic in in a lot of ways. But So looking ahead, is this a one and done case or do you think Bone Valley will have additional seasons? That's a really good question. I think, you know, if something happens in the case as a result of the story getting out there, I think it's possible there could be some updates along the way. I mean, Leo Schofield is up for parole in March. And, and part of the really most, I think, one of the most horrible parts of this entire process is Leo's been in prison now for 35 years. He's a model inmate. I think he has like, he's been written up five times over his entire stay. And they're all really for minor infractions, you know, really minor stuff. Um, he's a leader in the prison. He run, He's like the pastor of the messianic community. He's a, a tremendous leader and invented programs he says that i've had to graduate from um you know he's just he's just a stalwart in the in the in the community and um you know he's definitely served his minimum which is 25 years and at the parole hearing you have you know corrections officers showing up his family all these people testifying on his behalf even the family of the victim michelle schofield her own brother wrote a letter recommending parole saying she wasn't convinced of the of the conviction um but Unfortunately, the state, the retired state attorney for, for the Tenth Circuit shows up and says that Leo has never shown remorse, he's never said he's sorry, and he, he should not be released from prison. And every time he does that, they vote to keep him behind bars. And so I find that part of it is just the cruelest part of it at all. I mean, he has a claim of innocence. He's always claimed innocence from day one. And because of that, he's being held in prison because he won't apologize for a murder that he did not commit. That's another issue that's come up in other cases is one of the qualifications for parole in many jurisdictions in states is that you show remorse. Well, how do you show remorse for something you said you didn't do? How many people are going to go ahead and be wrongfully convicted but confess to something just to get parole? I mean, when you're in there, I imagine the only thing you want to do is get out. Yeah. And that's the thing. He says, look, I got a family. I have a daughter. I, you know, I'll do anything to get out of here, but I'm not going to admit to a lie just to get out of prison. And, you know, he's backed that up. I mean, he was offered immunity to testify against his father from the prosecutor that would have had, he could have walked out of prison right there if he'd agreed to testify his father. He just said, look, my father didn't do it either. Like I was out searching with him. And and then later on, because as they got closer to trial, I think the prosecutor wasn't really that confident in his case. 
he offered Leo second degree murder, which would have really been a light sentence in Florida back then because you would have got credit for time served. It would have been a 12 year sentence, but he said he would have been out in probably a couple years. So he could have got out of, out of prison in the early 90s. And prosecution keeps saying he will do anything to get out of prison. Well, he's actually will not do anything because he's had opportunities to get out of prison. So that's not true. And he, he says, look, I can't I can't plead guilty to a traffic citation if, you know, if it's a lie. I'm not going to do it. It's easier for me to do the time in here. but I'm not going to admit to a lie just to get out. He has a really remarkable story that he's he's trying to get out there. And I know that from, you know, the other works you've done that you approach things ethically and looking for truth more than a narrative. So I am really excited to hear the rest of Bone Valley. I know that my listeners will be interested in it. So where can they find you on social media if they want to engage with you about the episodes in the case? Uh, I'm definitely on Twitter. I'm not really a huge presence. I'm not really a big social media person, but I've promised to get better at it. So I, I can be found on, it's uh, Gilbert King uh, on Twitter, at Gilbert King, I guess. And then, I, yeah, I'm out there and on Facebook as well. I expect uh, I will engage with people once once this podcast really starts going. I, I've sort of gotten some already. Um, but uh, I, th- I thank you for saying what you just said, because I, I can tell you this, like, if I was started into this project and and I got like a few months in and I realized that I was being lied to or that I was being conned or I didn't believe something, I would have stopped right away because I can't invest four years of my life into a case that's, you know, something's going to happen on this, on the other side to me that I'm going to find out, you know, halfway through two years in that, oh my God, he really did do it. And so I had to be really, do a lot of investing. I'm very skeptical about that. I can honestly tell you that every single thing that Leo has told me has checked out. I've never found one moment of deception with him. And, and it's funny because he, this, his case has led us down the road to other murders that happened in Florida where other people were accused and brought to court. And it, there's something really transparent about them. When you talk to them, they said, go ahead, look into my life as much as you want. Do whatever you can. I need help. I want to be able to clear my name. I, I'm an open book there's nothing off on the table that I will not talk about. And it was the same thing. We kept finding these people who were really truly not guilty of the crimes that were committed. It's the same kind of message. And you could just sort of feel it. Now, if you did something, if you really did the crime, I don't think you'd been inviting writers to come in and look at you and, Hey, I'm out of prison now. You know, I, I got off, uh, uh, but don't look too closely. You know, I mean, there, there's gotta be something to that. So I, I could definitely tell that Leo was just, it, there was nothing off the table that he w- wouldn't talk about. And he, he was an open book and, and it's been that way all four years. Well, thank you so much for coming on and giving me so much of your time. And I will um, definitely be checking out more of Bone Valley as it's released. And of course, I'll leave it in the show notes for my listeners so that they can easily find it. Thanks so much, Charlie. This is a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.